Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Thanks everyone for tuning back into today's episode of The Few and we're trying something a little bit different today. We're uh, in the vlog studio and really, again, excited by the talented individual we're going to be speaking to today. Actually, I've just realized we can't do the intro the way we normally do it, Sean, because he's literally sitting right here, absolutely right next to us. Everyone, this is Chris Reese Edwards, our guest for the day. And the main reason I thought we should have Chris on today is because his nickname was also Boo when he was in the military. So with that in common, nothing to do with all the amazing sound stuff he's done in startup businesses, working with veterans, uh, having an incredible career in his own right, primarily because of his nickname. Chris, <laughs> mate, thanks so much for coming on the show. And Sean, how are you doing, mate? Great, mate. Uh, feeling a bit left out here. My call sign's not Boo, and I'm not in the same location. So uh, welcome, Chris. Great to have you on the uh, episode today. Just raise your hand if you've got a question. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And Chris, what we like to do on The Few here is unpack what people think success is and whether or not they view themselves with a, a successful veneer. And you and I were talking earlier, and you've embarked upon a pretty interesting new startup, which is not only does it seem to make sense as a business, it does true good, true good for people. So how do you define yourself in the context of success? I remember this question was sent through to me, and I think as we were talking on the street, it was that Napoleon Hill quote that success is the culmination of or working towards a worthy ideal or goal. And so if you use that as a matrix, then I would say on paper, I'm a success because I pretty much find problems to solve and then solve them with technology. And we're always looking for the recurring themes with our guests. And I reckon it's fascinating in the open gambit that Chris is talking about problem solving again, Sean. Absolutely. It just seems to be this, this entrepreneurial drive around wanting to solve a problem. So you talk about problems, Chris, and the problem space that you deal with is, I mean, it's a pretty emotive space. And no doubt it's a space that when you look at a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business is really just a, it's a churn, it's a money, it's a margin. There's not a lot of attachment to what they do. Why don't you give us some insight into what you do that gives you that sense of purpose in the field that you have been involved in for quite some time? For me, because I've been out of defence now for almost 20 years. Time flies, eh? Yeah, I know, right? And I don't look a day <laughs> over 49. And I think it's really funny because in defence, there's always a mission and it's always moving forward. And that's been my mindset. This is my third startup in 20 years. Got to have a reason to get out of bed. I couldn't just make widgets or make cakes. That just wouldn't work for me. But when I've got, and I was talking before, I've got pretty severe PTSD. And when I'm actually having really bad days, all I need to do is tap back into what's getting me out of bed or what's keeping me off a ledge. And that's actually enough. And that's really when people say live to your life's purpose, that's ultimately what it's about, isn't it? It's about those days. And for everyone, maybe it's a different level of getting out of bed, but that sense of purpose, and again, Sean, see it a lot, 
is critical for the people that make a difference. And within that framework, there's lots of tough decisions that have to be made and lots of dragging yourself up off the rug or the carpet or under the doona. And it's such a huge topic to unpack something like PTSD and turning into the biz. You're like the guest that it's impossible to find an entry point <laughs> into the conversation. I might let Sean try and unpack some of your journey, Chris. What do you reckon, Sean? Where do you see Chris's journey as connecting to what you've seen and what you do? Yeah, so absolutely happy to, to dive in. But one thing that we see, and as you said, Boo, there's plenty of people have, I guess, a different thing that might be keeping them in bed, so to speak, or stopping them from moving forward. But you know, something that I don't know from experience, but I know some close friends who have also PTSD and and that that can really be a handbrake. So the purpose piece is an important part of it, but was it always that? Or you know, what sort of work did you do to get to the point where you could actually get that purpose, undo that handbrake and allow you to continue to move forward? Well, for me, it's actually really interesting. We were talking about this across getting coffee. So I came from a family with a lot of violence. So my mother and I were just beaten savage sometimes by an alcoholic father. So I joined the military with complex PTSD. But what mum did when she left dad was just instill in us a sense of service to country. So she became a local deputy mayor. She was on a federal remuneration tribunal. She worked with battered women. And so all of my family at some stage have been public servants and two of them still are. So much so that when I started to work for Rupert Murdoch, mum didn't speak to me for a year because I'd sold out. <laughs> so yeah, so it's always been about the purpose. Um, was your father in ex-military or? He said he was a Vietnam vet, but I have never found a record of it. Yeah. Yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah. How much does that experience shape you today? Many of us don't really have those experiences, and, yep. and we were talking about what a child gets upset with these days. Their TV's not working, can't turn on and do the PlayStation, but that sort of experience, and is talking about it something that's okay, or is it a- No, that has to be talked about because it, you know it's like in Australia, we lose a veteran every four days, and we also lose a woman to the hands of her partner or former partner every four days. Wow. And so and people don't talk about this stuff enough. So whilst I'm deeply uncomfortable right now talking about it, it needs to be talked about because sometimes other people hearing a fairly similar story makes a massive difference. And as we talked about during the 80s, I joined and was in service during the 90s as a peacekeeper and combat engineer, is that in the 80s, they recruited broken boys because they follow strong leaders. And they have no interest. They didn't have any interest. There's a lot more work done around mental health now, but they had no interest in fixing you. They just wanted to point you in a direction. So you think they, they fully acknowledge that there was a PTSD element to what maybe wasn't defined as that at the time, but that there was definitely something there that they could shape oh, and I, use in combat. I look at the Vietnam vets that trained us and they were just broken men. And back then, I don't think I'd ever heard the term. And so the research came out two years ago. It said 46% of us leave the service with a mental, moral, or physical injury. That's going to be permanent. So I love that Angus and all these other guys who are running defense now, it's on the radar and it's good and there's programs in place. It's taken a bloody long time. Yeah, and a lot of broken people. Yeah, a lot of God, and how many lives? Hundreds of lives, you know? Yeah, so talking about these things as ugly, as uncomfortable as it is, needs to be done. Does that not get overwhelming at times? Oh, how, yeah. Again, you know, one of the treatments for PTSD is immerse in the event and then get away from the event. And, and here, I'd imagine dealing with statistics around domestic violence, dealing with suicide, like it is a deeply energy sapping oh, yeah. enterprise, I'd imagine. So how do you balance that? How do you balance getting sucked into the vortex and having some positivity around it? I've got a wonderful partner who's ex-police and she's very forgiving. And I've got a three-month-old puppy that actually <laughs> keep me young. 
And those are both intentional acts. I went looking for a partner that was going to be supportive, but also understood our community in a sense. And we were talking about manifesting before. Yep. This was on my radar. I wanted someone strong who'd done something purposeful. She's also come from a background in ministry. So we talk about my faith and my challenges sometimes. And that's really good. That's really grounding. But for me specifically, like I've been away hospitalized twice in the last three months around PTSD and gone away to a uh, retreat to talk about suicidal ideation and stuff like that. So it's a constant, it's not a battle, it's just like an attention. So if I go running or I go swimming a couple of times a week, spend quality time with my partner, like we went and watched Hamilton last night and just immersed ourselves in something really beautiful and that helps me switch off for a couple of hours and takes the load off. I tell you what, Hamilton, uh, we watched it on the weekend with the kids and those damn songs. They are like, <laughs> yep. they're like crack cocaine in your head. They just like go around and you wake up in the morning and it's like, oh, there's a goddamn song again. Yeah. Uh, at least it's a happy one. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean, in terms of the businesses that you work with, and I think with Chris, there's so many layers of depth in what he does. And I may, actually, maybe let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you're actually doing now in terms of providing a service to this community. Well, we've got this whole movement now around this afterpay, buy now, pay later. And one of the driving factors for me to look at doing something like that for veterans is that something like a third of veteran suicides are directly related to financial pressures. So we've built a platform called Coda that is basically a buy now, pay later to pay off cost of living expenses. So the idea is you give us your bill and we'll pay it off and you pay it back over four installments. So it's not about impulse buys. It's not about late fees and things like that. It's more about a service to the community that's dearly needed. I see this has application beyond veterans and first responders as well because most people live on a fortnightly or monthly pay cycle and there's just those months where something happens, right? Yep. Out of your control, you know you're going to be good for it in next pay cycle, but you need the cash now. Yeah, there was one of the banks came out not too long ago and said 75% of Australians are unable to meet any unexpected um, expense. Yeah. So, you know, and yeah. couldn't find $2,000 if they needed it. Yep. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is pretty scary, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's as we said before, we lost a guy earlier this year over a $50 phone bill. He was too embarrassed to actually ask for money. So if we can solve problems like that, then that's what gets me out of bed. That's a pretty motivating thing to get, get out of bed for. Problems are solved by people that can bring unique perspectives to common problems. And you were in the military, you had experience of this yourself, and then you've made a journey into digital, into the digital space. So how did that unfold? I was drunk on Brampton Island, and I met a guy from Census <laughs> who said, you talk a lot. Would you like to come and work? Made it, was, it was fantastic. <laughs> it, changed, it actually changed my life. That was 2000. And um, yeah, I was on Brampton Island as the activities and entertainment manager doing karaoke and beach volleyball for a year. <laughs> and this guy came with his fiance and he said, you could talk underwater. Do you want to come and work for us? And so my first, I was just saying this to my fiance last night, my base salary was almost one and a half times what my military salary was. Wow. And I was making all this commission as well too as a sales role. And then from there- The census was like yellow pages. And yeah, yeah yellow pages online. Yeah. yeah. So back before we had Google, Facebook, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. we were selling Yahoo search listings and- wow. <laughs> and trying to explain to small business owners. So you've been on the digital journey literally from the from when it was an embryonic thing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and so every every startup I've been involved in, whether I've funded or actually launched, has been a digital solution to an existing problem. I'll jump in when I can. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a different context this one. But one of the questions that, and one of the things that I've seen in my own journey is going through and, and coming from a very open with this, a background of having clinical depression for 17 years and and knowing what it's like not to want to get out of bed and all those sorts of things that, that you think and feel at those low moments. 
How important have you found that having the right network of people around you has been helping you to to progress forward and to lift you up when you need it? It's been crucial. Um, I mean, you built a business around that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what they say, so you're the sum total of the five people you spend the most time mm. with. So I've um, got rid of any toxic person. Lived overseas for a couple of years. We, where I came up with the idea for the app, and then came back and. It was funny, the people who wanted to hang around were only there because you were buying drinks. As soon as you're not buying drinks anymore, <laughs> yeah. oh, they disappear. Yeah. So I've been very, very conscious of who I spend time around, both professionally. I've got a good psychotherapist that I work with, and he's been really good for me as well. I've got a couple of people that I speak to on a regular basis around mental health and wellness, and then I've got the fiancé that I'm marrying next Friday. And oh, yeah. congratulations. Well, wow, look at that. Taking you away from your marriage preparations, <laughs> which are no doubt to the letter. Oh, it's you think running a startup stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. <laughs> and uh so you you built an app and the purpose of this app was was basically using the inherent capabilities of smart devices, your your watch that can measure biometrics. Yep. And then it would send indicators that someone was under stress, and then it would create an alert system that would put them in touch with a network that could support them in that moment. Yep which is sort of beyond their control when they're potentially going to make it a harmful decision. Yep, it's spot on. So what we found that was really interesting in the trial was you had your smartwatch on and that was doing the detection of stress, but then your partner had the app on her phone so she could see or he could see yeah. when you were spiraling. Yeah. And so that for us was amazing. So when we did a trial with 100 people from a company just down the road here, what we found is, because there was three screens you go through as a triage process, 28% of people had gone right through to that last screen wow. in the last 30 days because they were inherently stressed and weren't realizing it. We even had someone resign from work because the app finally showed her and her partner what he'd been trying to tell her for years. Yeah, wow. We're so super stressed. It's backed in your sleep. I think we improved a marriage and a sex life, we were told, um, <laughs> which was deeply uncomfortable because she's told it in front of everyone. So, yeah. Still, there's a lot so, of people that would be paying good money for that. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a side benefit to everything, right? <laughs> but, um, no, it was amazing to think that you could use common technologies in novel ways to actually make a really big difference. Let's talk about innovation briefly. We'll go off script because you're an innovator, right? And when you look at innovation, it's not getting a blank sheet of paper, is it? And coming up with some left field idea that's never been created, never been invented before. It's an evolution or bringing together existing components in a highly innovative way. Yeah, Would, that, a, would that be a way to describe it? It's funny. I, I ran part of the innovation lab at News Corp. I was on the global panel and we'd look at stuff that was really innovative and truly innovative. Like, here's a brand new technology. How could we use this in a new yeah. way? But I don't think I'm actually much of an innovator in a sense. I'm just using stuff off the shelf in a way that's kind of been proven in other markets to solve a problem. So, But isn't that genuine innovation because it's, it then gets used rather than spaceships that you can put in your backyard, which is innovative and conceptually possible but isn't going to see the light of day until 2300. So what was it? It was uh, 2015 or so I was running events for AdTech and iMedia. So I got to sit in rooms with guys from NASA, JPL and IDEO, the world's most innovative agency and stuff. And you look at- Was this when NASA couldn't figure out how to get spaceships into space? <laughs> I think it was around the same time, yeah. <laughs> and it was really funny to sit down with these guys who are real innovators. And so they'd use De Bono theories and stuff around, all right, come up with an idea that actually helps with healthcare and think about a trampoline and a frog. 
as stimulus and you're just like sorry what and the ideas that came out and we weren't allowed to stop doing ideation until we had 100 post-it notes on the wall and so it was really amazing when you gave people structures around innovation or thinking and then set them free and there was a no dumb idea rule and there were some really dumb ideas and most of them were mine but um and from that they created three companies and two technologies it was wow. just mind-blowing yeah that to me is innovation yeah there's a process that i use like I've talked to with my clients that I work with, it's, it's that concept where you said there's no dumb ideas. It's the yes and theory. It's like, yes, and what about this? Rather than no or but, which just shuts down that idea. It's that concept that if someone randomly says a banana and you're like, banana, let's capture it. And then later on someone says an apple and then they capture that. And later on someone says an orange. And in the end they go, how about a fruit salad? I mean, you wouldn't have got the fruit salad if someone shut down the banana as being a dumb idea. You never get through to that final outcome. So I think it's so important to, you know, when you are looking to come up with new ideas and innovate, to consider every idea, even if it's a trampoline and a frog or a banana, you never know what that's going to stir up. And often it's those left of field things that really start to put some of those puzzle pieces together. That's, you know, that's what I found as well in that process. I think it's interesting. We were just talking about one of the banks releasing an index of what was making people really happy. And, you know, money sits really down low on that list. But um, when I was at News, we put out an employee suggestion box to try and improve staff retention and also happiness at work. And we got about 300 suggestions, I think, in total. And the one thing that made the biggest difference was putting more cutlery in the kitchen. <laughs> and it was ridiculous. And so people would actually stay in the office and have lunch, but the cutlery was the thing that moved the needle by about 20%. That to me is innovation in a sense because what I do is you ask the market what it needs and then give it to it. I love that that story has just always cracked me up because you could see the difference in the energy in the room where people all started to co-locate, which is a big thing around startup and innovation, is um, you had the dev guys beside the design guys beside us in the sales and content teams, and we all started speaking the same language. And then the ideation that occurred at those tables, especially when the bar was open, was just incredible. You're right, though. There's nothing more annoying than there being no fork and 12 knives in the community drawer when you want to have something to eat. When you talk to entrepreneurs or when we talk to entrepreneurs, they're very much vested in their business. Talking to you, though, Chris, it seems that you're very much vested in the people that use your service. It's a bit of both. So with Coda, I'm not going to run it. We're looking for a CEO for that right now because I know that startup for me can be quite draining and especially the purpose because it wears really heavy on my soul. When we sat down with the governor general a few weeks ago and he was just like, so, you know, what's your experience? Tell me your story. And they're so far removed away from the actual problem. That's the biggest can you can open really, isn't it? Because they want a two minute or yeah. six, 30 second sound. Yeah, bite, they, really. yeah, they were just, with respect to him, they were looking for sound bites for Anzac Day, and yeah. that was perfect. Yeah. But um, when we speak as frankly as we do about what we're doing, yes, it's exhausting, and that's where I saw your mate down there. It's exhausting, so I have to step away from it yeah. as much as possible. But for me, I love building the teams. So when I was at News, we had about 26 on the team or so, and it was back to co-location. I had everyone sitting together, journalists with sales and marketing and whatever, and that for me set them free. And so same thing, no stupid questions. Everyone at the table speaks when we had our meetings and we won a couple of, or nominated for some industry awards because of the work that the team did because they were set free. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. So for me, it's kind of the balance between the purpose and the team. So Chris, in context, I mean, we 
obviously have a lot of we also have a lot of small businesses and small business owners that have teams that listen to the podcast how could a small business owner translate that into a small team how would you suggest they they open up the the platform because i know that there's a lot of i suppose perceived resistance in many small businesses that the team don't want to buy into that they just come to work and they do what they do and how have you seen that adapt and change when you give people that opportunity or give people that forum and how could we potentially do that as small business owners for example what I think is really interesting that's come out of COVID is working from home and working across borders. Borders don't mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I do that, so with my first startup, <laughs> at one stage we had 107 people working on the project in five countries. And so that took a lot of logistics. And now in this age of Zoom and calendar invites and everything, I would book in time with each of my teams one-on-one. We'd set structures around how we communicated, like the whole, whole no dumb questions rules. And there was lots of communication, actually, and that was the thing. Management has to actually accept that, as Richard Branson says, the idea is to hire smart people and get out of their way. Yeah. And so we'd sit down in rooms, and if it doesn't come from the top down, that everyone has a voice and everyone has value and everyone understands what the man to the left and right of them is doing and how they all work together, then it doesn't work. And yeah. I think small businesses struggle with that because mm. I think the owners can't get out of their own way. Oh, yeah. I think they're, it's almost like a codependency yep. where it's like, how could it possibly work without me? Or it's going to be 20 grand less I'm going to take out at the end of the year if I hire someone that's going to cost me 20 grand more who's going to be more capable. So I, I think there's some human nature barriers there. Oh, yeah. Because I'm really fascinated to unpick what it's like being an innovator in a big company. Because some of the things I've observed in large organizations is there's either too much white paper brainstorming and not enough execution or buried in old-fashioned execution. How do the two worlds meet and create genuine outcomes? I think what I've seen that's interesting, having gone through two accelerators in the last few years, is when you bring in the young and hungry and poor startups into a big commercial organization and you start to see how they work. That's how I saw change. So when we're at News, when I was at Telstra, they brought in these people kind of like as inspiration. Mm. So this person solved this challenge or they're doing this really well and shut up and listen. Mm. But back to my point before, if it doesn't come from management all the way down through to the coalface that we have this new way of working or whatever structures we need, let's learn on the fly. Because you know what I've seen being in big organizations is that really slow to move, as you said, lots of white paper and a lot of ideation. inertia, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then vested resi- interests, and then resistance too, because yeah. people are stuck on BAU, yeah, and then innovation should take up a percentage of your time. So when I was news and my startup, my time was divided 70 20 10. 70 percent was BAU, yep. 20 percent was on product um, evolution or partnership meetings, and 10 percent was on pure just kind of go and find something that. I'd never heard of before and dig into it. Mate, you just you just struck the biggest chord ever. You just said evolution instead of change. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> that's for me. That's like that mindset is so different, isn't it? The evolutionary mindset yeah. versus the change. Because change infers we're going from this steady state into this steady state. The word change is dangerous. Yeah. And I don't agree with revolution because we're not trying to change countries here, but evolution mindset and practices means that we're already here. And you're acknowledging in a positive way that we're moving somewhere. And I think that's actually really interesting because back to the thing about millennials wanting to work in a purpose-built organization, when people have a clear goal and they buy into it, really good stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. Loving this. Why do you think it's such an easy concept to get your head around but so poorly executed? Accelerators, for example, like they don't teach this. But take yourself out of the environment. Like it's like- 
let's say you're a high performance athlete, right? Every day you're working with the Olympic swimming team and yep. you're hanging out with Olympic volleyballers and Olympic. So within that environment, you would kind of say, yeah, look, other people, they kind of get it. Yep. But you put them down at the local pool. Yep. And you say, why can't the people at the local pool swim the same as we? That's like a lot of the world doesn't think, act, or live in the communities that you create for yourself. Right. As you said, having made the decision to make the sum total of the five people around you and then the five people around them, Sean has through his community, I work in high performance, you work in startups, we have created a rarefied, the few. So what what is the disconnector between people that get bogged down, that do not have a growth mindset? What is it about that disconnect between these groups of people? Why are these people toxic? That's probably the maybe the million dollar question. Yeah. Like what differentiates the few from from so many people I, that can't shift? I definitely think you've touched on two points. One is the tribe. Yep. So how do you be better at tennis? Play a better player. Yeah. And then the second part of that though is appetite. If you don't want it and you don't want to change, and there's nothing wrong with the people out there who just want to do a nine to five, watch the NRL on the weekend, have a barbecue. And that's all they want. And that's totally fine. And countries are run by those people. But the few that actually want to get out there and really, really push. For me, when the first startup, I did 280,000 kilometers in the air to five countries to learn what technologies could be done Mm. and sat down in rooms where I was the dumbest guy. Mm. And it was awesome. And I asked dumb questions. Mm. And that's because my ego wasn't in the way. And I really wanted the win. Mm. And so I back to the millennials with purpose as well too. You show them what the win is and what they're involved in it and suddenly the appetite increases. Mm. And then they'll work a little bit harder, they'll work a little bit smarter, and they'll ask the dumb questions that need to be asked to solve the problem. Mm. It's interesting. In aviation, we do this thing called crew resource management, and it it effectively teaches everyone their strengths and weaknesses. So they teach captains that, look, you've been around for a while – you're going to want to just step in, handle the situation. You're a new person. You're going to want to withdraw. You're not going to want to contribute. Okay. It's one of the few environments where you're actually taught how to work together That's interesting. as a team. How valuable do you think that sort of training would be inside an organization to actually explain to people, you're going to feel this way because you're new. Yep. You feel this way because you're old. So get over it yep. and come together. And you've got all the new ideas and you're at the coal fate. You're the one that's actually expending effort. You're the one that's doing strategy. Come together, create this mentor environment, create this, I guess, fusion of, of ideas and perspectives. How important is that and how would you do it? The way I've done it in the past twice now actually is used Bono's six thinking hats and then actually map those hats against the people on the team because that comes with a a range of paradigms around how those people like to work. So, you know, you can't have a team of all innovators because nothing's going to get done. But um, And being very clear about that as well too. So use is the best example of that because journos, for the most part, aren't big personalities. They're very good at what they do, and I had some brilliant people working for me. The sales guys never shut up. And the marketing guys have a totally different hat. Back to the co-location at the table thing, when we all sat around together and we talk and you'd get to see that that person's a little bit quiet or maybe there's a question burning and then other people would invite them to participate. It's definitely appetite. It's definitely team focus to actually get that level of transparency so that you get the outcomes you want. So I was deeply embarrassed two years into working for um, Mr. Murdoch that one of my team said, do you mind if we don't just do catch-up drinks on Friday? I'm actually Muslim. Two years I'd worked wow. with her. I know her son and everything, and I did not know that. And we all just 
wet ourselves laughing because it was like a big slap in the face. <laughs> and then we started to question everything. And it was really interesting. Just um, those habits, just those almost like Western habits or yeah. or habits you would have grown up with through the military, through yep. I'd never uh, all of us. Thought we have drinks, ask. right? That's a, yeah. that's a big thing. Oh, the CEO used to push around a drinks cart. He, ne- <laughs> he never really made it past the product team because we liked the drinks and they're free. <laughs> but it was hilarious. So, And then there was another girl on the team who joined and two weeks after joining got pregnant. So she, she stopped coming to events, the drinks, and everything else because she was going to have a baby soon enough. And that's how we actually worked it out. And it was funny when we started questioning kind of everything in a sense and then putting dumb ideas on boards and things and say, what's the problem we're actually trying to solve here? Are we just trying to make people happier? Do we want to do more innovative products and teams? Do we just want to communicate better? And I learned from my team that I was too dictatorial in meetings. And so that's why we did the round table thing where it's like everyone speaks. I speak last. And that changed the dynamic something fierce. What was it like receiving that feedback? Oh, it was pretty hard at the time. Yeah. I'm a natural kind of type A personality, but um, I was actually humbled by it. I have to be perfectly honest. It um, took a couple of days for that to settle and maybe a few beers. But when I put it into practice, literally the next day, you saw the dynamic change really quickly. So when working for Rupert, I had one of the best team retentions because people loved working together. And to the point where I left, I was the tipping point and a bunch of people started to go because the energy's gone and the leadership's gone. Yeah. It's interesting. Leadership again, another theme. But uh, speaking of leadership, it's a good segue. Yesterday, I spent a bit of time with one of our previous podcast guests, Jen Jevons, in her business, uh, Pixel Palace, doing a, a leadership day with her team. And one of the things that we'd seen due to you know rapid growth in that business that is that there'd been a disconnect between leadership and the team. And yes, they were all busy and it was all happening and they were growing very rapidly and they doubled the size of their team and all sort of stuff. But what had been forgotten was that the leadership kind of started to look more like, as you just said, Chris, then a little bit more dictatorial than collaborative. And all it took was a few hours getting back in the room, go back to realigning with the vision, go back to realigning with the values to stress test how, you know, the business was going with those values. And I've just had some feedback, you know, earlier this morning that the whole team has shown up differently. They've shown up much more engaged, feeling much more aligned because that piece had been kind of neglected during the focus of growth. And now it's like, we need to come back. We need to support those people. So I think it's a very important part of that process is not to be a leader that is is dictatorial or just driving it wherever you want, irrespective of what other people say. It's, as you said, take it into account, take other people's input first and then respond to that because it's very, very powerful frame. A question I had for you, Chris, is how do you perceive the concept of failure and how do you move through that if something happens, a setback or a failure, however you, you refer to it? What's Michael Jordan's quote? He's missed 10,000 shots, right? And it's like it's a learned behavior to actually just keep picking yourself back up. So for me, failure is if I don't learn the lesson, from the failure or whatever the incident was, that's, that's failure. failure. That's yeah. complete failure. Yeah. That's, so that's a good point. I looked at my last startup and it didn't go as well as I wanted to. And we did some amazing stuff. But now I know for the next one, I'm getting out of the way. So I'll lead from the back with a team and I'll put them all in place and we'll do what we need to do to get solving the problem. Because I've learned from past experience where my weaknesses are yep. and also how to manage myself. And I have to be really committed to my fiance as well too that she knows that when i'm heavily stressed i'm not present yeah you can be so consumed in a startup oh yeah you? i was yeah. doing 110 hour weeks for six months yeah. and it was brutal so like my skin breaks out my hair falls out i got my first gray hairs because of a startup <laughs> and i'd never had gray hair before and so i look at all those kind of failures in the way that i led or that i did stuff and i'm using those to shape what not to do next time 
So let's unpack that. Somewhere along your journey, did you just have this moment where you went, when did you first realize, I'm a leader? The buck rests with me. And that awareness of leading, when did that sort of hit you? And then you start on a program of being the best leader that you can be. Oh, look, I wouldn't even say I'm a good leader. I think I'm a decent leader. So when I was 16, as I said, my mum moved into public service and we all became public servants. So we always had this sense of purpose and showing up and getting the job done. And I remember my one of my first times in the army that they asked me at chapel to read from the Bible, which I'd never done in my life. And I've got quite a big voice as well, too. And it's funny how- You do have a good voice for radio, mate. <laughs> I think you'll, uh, you'll make Sean and I look bad in the podcast. I've got a good face for radio, too. <laughs> But it was really interesting is like the impact that had on the boys around me is like because we naturally look up to people on podiums or with higher rank or whatever. But when I got into the corporate world, Yellow Pages Online, it was all private school boys and no disrespect to them, but we'd all just done this training course together. And then our boss at the time said, everyone speak for one minute about who you are and why you're here. And he did the Simon Sinek. What's your why? Yeah. Are you just driven by money? Do you want to be celebrated? And I got up and spoke last. So Scots College, Scots College, Scotch College, and then it's like former army combat engineer and peacekeeper. And <laughs> and I've been on training with these guys for two weeks learning and the energy because we're 2% of the population who put on uniforms yep. in service of country doing ostensibly a high-risk yeah. job. And these young guys who were just like, oh, you're just really gobby, suddenly, oh, wow. And that that's actually shaped my career. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And you own it, right? Like I certainly, for me, find it a rock to say, only I know my journey through defense, like 11 years and, and what you do and the connection. And But you can never really, particularly as a fighter pilot, the only way you can explain it is it's a bit like Top Gun, but not really. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard to contextualize defense, isn't it? And it's, it's an area where I think people struggle is transitioning out of that well, that environment. I think it's interesting is that the good stuff that comes out of defense, like resilience, teamwork, courage. And courage is a really interesting one that I talk about quite a bit now is because courage is acting despite fear because we're going to be fearful. And back to the engagement with some people who just want to go to work and pay for a mortgage or whatever, some of that action is just out of fear. Mm. So they might have these great ideas to start up something and do it, but they don't have the courage to act mm. on it or take that next step. Mm. So it's interesting. I think more good comes out of defense than bad, by all means. But trying to explain to people why the 2% of us do these batshit crazy jobs, mm, mm. which scars you for life for the most part, it's really, really hard. And there's a bit of an adrenaline attached to it too, I think. What's your relationship with fear and how's that shaped the decisions that you make in life? Fear's driven my whole life. Uh, so growing up as a child in violence where wow. parents are betraying you because mum's supposed to protect you from dad mm. and dad's kicking the living shit out of you. So you make every decision based on fear yeah, after that. Wow. So It's a survival instinct. Oh, yeah. So the really interesting thing about veterans and anyone from first responder is cortisol that floods through the brain when you're in a fight, flight, or freeze mode. Because you stay in these high-stress environments, it actually changes your heart rate variability and your body chemistry. And so for me, even watching Hamilton last night, something happened in the shed seat behind me and I broke out in a cold sweat. But I had to learn courage to actually just breathe through it, not let it show. So it's really interesting. Do it, does it actually literally change the chemical composition of your yeah, brain? Yeah. So, so what happens, and we learned this with doing our um, app, is that heart rate variability, which we extrapolated from the app, of a veteran versus a civilian is very different. Yeah, right. And so the really scary part about that, though, is because it can change it up to about 40% is that um, we've lost two guys. So when you have a heart attack, because your heart's not as strong um, or it's under more pressure, one of my mates was jogging with a mate a couple of years ago and he dropped dead from heart attack and he was dead before he hit the ground. 
they just couldn't do anything because his system was just so kind of flooded and broken. That's not an uncommon story. So yeah, it's really interesting. And are there ways that with your digital solutions here, because like every great idea, it always starts with an extreme and it starts with those first adopters and you can see where you're coming from here and the extreme need to have this. But I I see what you're creating in the digital space having a very broad application. When we talk about self-awareness, yep. we talk about that mentally, but clearly here's an opportunity to increase self-awareness physically as well. So unless you have been to a psychologist and unless you've started a journey to go, oh, I'm responding to this in an emotional way. It's not logic. I can provide some cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and get out of it. Most people don't do that. They feel something. They hide, run. They behave in a way that's not healthy. Yep. So, so this technology provide cues for people? Yeah, well, we called it forced mindfulness. So even one of the suggestions was when it started the triage process to help you breathe or use the app, if you notice that you were stressed, we'd even suggest to you, go and listen to Calm or Headspace. And so what we found over the course of the 90-day trial was people became much more mindful of where stress sat and the difference between eustress and de-stress. You know, the Fifty Shades of Grey response when you're reading that or watching the movie is a very different response to fight, flight, or freeze. I never saw that movie. I've yeah. not read the book. I made a mistake. I watched it. <laughs> um, but what I thought was really interesting is that by the end of the 90 days, the frequency and severity of those stress incidents had reduced yeah, because right. people started to see that I get stressed coming into the office on Monday because I'm going to have to put in a sales report or something like that. And so they would do their breathing exercise on the way to the office. And so they were less acute by the time they got yeah, there. Wow. And the number of people who are just absolutely shocked by what was causing them stress was mind-blowing. Now, it's incredible that you, and as you say, like it's like a push notification of awareness. You're actually helping people to be aware of their state when they're not in that, they don't have that necessarily that capability yet or that skill that they've developed within. And we couldn't have done that five years ago without the technology. It's, it's an incredible progression and utilisation of, of something so basic as, a, as the watch. But to be able to monitor and address that with somebody and help them to become aware, as you said, where's this stress sitting? What's the actual trigger? And not only do maybe they do the exercises, but I'd imagine that some people would change what they're actually going to do or alter their behaviour to not then trigger that response even prior to that happening rather than just do, say, the breathing exercises to support it. Have you seen that as well in this process, that people are consciously then changing or adapting how they do things to support what they now can actually tell? Yeah, so it was interesting that as part of the trial, what we also did was regular emails with ideas around how to be healthier or whatever. And we gave people challenges of doing those 10,000 steps a day. Mm. And moving frequently is one of the best ways to actually burn off stress. And so people started really buying into it. So we had a scoreboard and that everyone could see whose team was doing better or whatever. And that really started to motivate people. And then I think cumulatively, I think we lost hundreds of kilos of weight. And then we were focusing on sleep. So sending them a prompt and watch this video before you go to bed, reduce the blue lights in the room, temperature below 21 degrees, blah, blah, blah. People started doing it. And that's why I think we got to the end of that whole testing cycle and we had less frequency, less intensity of incidents. What I'm really interested in, in picking your brain on here is you've obviously moved into the digital space with well-being. When we look at emerging technologies, when we look at AI, machine learning, augmented reality, what is the future for humans and well-being and the interface with digital if we project out five, 10 years? 
one of the pet projects I'm looking at at the moment is called a cobot to work on Alexa or Google Home. And the idea is social isolation is probably going to kill more people than obesity. So a cobot is a three-tiered chatbot. And the top layer is the discussion layer. So you ask a question. Yep. The next is the objective layer, which actually goes and points you in the right direction. And then you've got the content layer that actually surfaces up whatever. And we can. I'm starting to look at this right now with AI, is turn that into a conversation. So when you walk into the house and you're like just talking on the phone and stress in the voice is the easiest way to denote stress in the body outside of heart rate variability, Alexa could actually hear you being stressed and initiate a conversation. So that solves the social isolation thing to an extent because what we've learned with AI and avatars, for example, so veterans in the States at the moment are dealing with, I think her name is Ellie and she's a computer generation. She doesn't record what you're saying or anything, and she's watching you, and she's talking to you about your PTSD symbols. Guys are twice as likely to be honest when it's to an avatar. Wow. So I think the whole layer of how technology can engage people in new ways and have utility as well too. So it's great to go, hey, Alexa, I need some more eggs. That's one thing. But if Alexa can pick up, I'm having a screaming fight with my partner, initiate a domestic violence call or a support thing at a discreet time, I think that's where we're going to start to see some really interesting things happening. Do you think people will be able to differentiate between talking to an AI interface? Well, that's the Turing test, isn't it? So Alan Turing's one was that if you're talking to a computer and you can't tell, then great. We've been there for like three, five years. And I also like that there's a wonderful safety element of talking to an Alexa or something. So my other half in the car all the time is like, hey, Siri, this, hey, Siri, that. So we understand the utility. Now we have to add some complexity and kind of, I think the trust is already there. You know? How quickly is that moving? Uh, really quick. Oh, my God. I've got a friend working on it at the moment to work with elderly people who are isolated or living in a retirement village to initiate um, contact between the kids and grandmum so she knows that someone's still out there loves her. I think that's almost ready to market. And so we did the test with the cobot a few weeks ago. It was brilliant. So you could choose different voices and everything. We're oh. looking at actually doing fake celebrity voices as well too. So get coached by- You can have my voice, Sean, in your house. Enough, Are right? you okay, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's such a such a um a broad potential application of that. Just just the the concept of connecting grandma to the grandkids or to the kids or whatever. Or and I think it's myself sometimes. I'm like, oh, I haven't called my dad or whatever because you get so busy that and there's always other notifications and things that are kind of bombarding your emails and calls and this and that and the other. That some of that really important stuff get can get forgotten. And I think that ability to prompt us to make connection, to reach out, to engage with those that, you know, we care about. I think that's a really, really positive thing. And as, as you say too, you know, I guess a lot of this came from the basis of working with, with veterans when it comes to heart rate and stress and things like that. But that can apply across the board with anybody wearing a watch, anybody that's in it, having an argument, anybody that's going through, you know, a challenging period or imagine how many thousands of kilos of weight can be lost as that, that community of people using it becomes larger. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, I think once that interface with Google or Amazon starts to become, because it's still, sometimes it's a bit clunky, right, or Siri, it'll, yep. when that starts to mature, and you, I think you nailed it on the head, it's about trust, isn't it? When that mm. interface starts to become seamless, yep. I think that's transformative. Well, I mean, my thing that freaks me out is Facebook. When you say something and then you see the ads, yep. trust is eroded there. And um, yeah, What's going on with that? It's obviously monitoring, right? 
That's yeah. a gross invasion of privacy, isn't it? Well, if you watch the Cambridge Analytica documentary and you look at how social media is being used in very different ways, manipulative ways, you have what's called this experience tunnel. So if we're friends and I just follow three news sites, that's my whole experience of the world. Yeah. And then Boolean search in Google, I know what I'm looking for. And if you don't bring me semantic information that broadens my world, I just stay in this rut. Yeah. So I think technology being used proactively to initiate a conversation with somebody who could be stressed or I've just seen that your calendar is really, really full. As soon as you walk in the door, let's do a breathing exercise or let's go for a walk or whatever. I think that's where it gets really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I presume that you can also broaden belief structures. It seems to me one of the downsides of of social media and Google right now is it it actually reinforces negative belief structures. It's so dangerous. Someone showed me a hack recently to clean up my newsfeed. And the best and worst example of this is when I split up with my ex-wife and had my suicidal time, I changed my Facebook status to separated. And within five minutes, I think I went to the bathroom or got a coffee, came back and I was getting ads for Asian brides. Yeah, wow. Now, you just look at what that did to me in a really vulnerable time. Yeah. No context whatsoever. And then you looked at what happened with the US election. So- they were doing dynamic ad generation. So Trump's campaign did something like 60,000 different iterations. So if you'd liked Ford Focus as a car, here's a photo of him in front of a Ford Focus or something like that. And then Hillary's campaign was like a couple of thousand. So they were actually just using dynamic data on the fly to manipulate an agenda. Then that for me is really scary. I know someone who uses a speaker in their house, so they talk to their dogs because the dogs get really anxious. So, oh, they, so while they're awake, they can speak yeah, to the dogs. Yeah, they just, they'll dial up the actual app and talk to the dogs. Does that work? I wasn't sure if that worked. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Dogs can hear you on the phone. Because it sits right in front of their TV, and the dog is less anxious and doesn't make such a mess of the house if they get to speak to mum or dad twice a day. Wow. And I'm considering doing it for hours because she's a monster, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sick of losing skin. But um, yeah, we leave her alone and everything gets destroyed. If you were going to advise someone on getting into a startup, A lot of people Mm. want to do their own startup. What would be the sort of three tips that you would give someone who genuinely, not not someone that just wants the Ferrari, but someone who can identify genuine need, but the gates and the challenges of fundraising, of doing various things, what would be kind of your, your three keys to success for someone to get this piece of innovation off the ground? I love this rule of never eat lunch alone when you start a new role. I've used that my whole career. So go and ask the dumb questions, meet the CEO, meet whatever, but find the domain experts, someone who's doing it or fairly similar and sit down with them and actually have a chat. For me, that made a massive difference for everything I've done. Even now learning how to do a buy now, pay later solution. So new to me, but I just sat down with the smartest people. And I think people can be quite generous if you're just saying, look, this is what I'm trying to do. Can I just pick your mind for If they it? can see your purpose, though, yeah. you think they sort of come come on board with I it? I really do. As long as there's a purpose. I mean, if you're just going to make widgets, I mean- Or make money. I want to yeah. make a fortune. Give me all your ideas and IP so I can use it yeah. myself. I think if, definitely if you can attach a purpose to what you're doing, that gets people on board. Mm-hmm. People come on board and people steer you to other people. But yeah, never eating lunch alone. And so networking like a boss- is actually the one thing I see startups tank at all the time. Mm. And having been in corporate events for years now, we used to have to train people how to go and start a conversation across Mm. the room Mm. because you do not know what's going to come out of that conversation. And our rule with events was three, three, and three. Meet three new people, meet three vendors or technologies, and find three actions that you're going to take back to the office Mm. the next day. Love the rule of three. Yeah, and so we gave that to people on stage and we watched them starting to do it. And so we gave them a little flyer, so watch your three, three, and three. And we saw the needle being moved. And the other thing for startups for me as well too is manage your mental health. 
just be really, really focused on who your tribe is around you and not just going 100 hell weeks, which is so normal, yeah. and underpaying yourself and just letting your health slip. A lot of coaches say that you have to do that, though. You know, A lot of people that advise people, they, they say it has to be your one thing. You, if you don't put 110% of yourself into this, you will fail. Is that true? I agree and disagree. I mean, there's a lot of work at the start, but if you don't learn to manage, that's where stuff happens because something like 75% of startups are gone within three years. Mm. It's a really horrible number, but the amount of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation in the startup community is twice the national average. Mm. And that's because people aren't managing themselves well. That's what I'm saying. Like with the one I'm doing now, I'm getting out of the picture. I'll be the ambassador for it, but that's a very conscious choice about myself, my relationship, and my product. My product will be better for it if I'm out of the way and I'm taking time for me. It makes a massive difference. And so when I was at the start of the journey, when you're so excited and you're full of beans and you're running 100 miles an hour, it's cool, but then it gets draining. Yep. So, you know, yes, absolutely spend a few months, do it as a side hustle if you can, till you get up to a certain amount of money, which I think the argument is you should be able to replace your salary before you leave your job. Yep. Yeah, and the tribe. It's all about the tribe. No, I agree. And I like that side hustle concept as well. You should be able to find time outside of work in your current paid job to get your idea to something that's moderately- Well, we consider we watch like four hours of TV a day on average, I think, yeah. in Australia. That's a lot of time. That's Hell yeah. 28 hours across the week or something that you could put into something else. That's- and if it's work, that four hours, you haven't found your passion, right? You'll want to spend that four hours doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so Chris, clearly you've covered a lot in your journey so far. If you were to take some of those lessons and go back to a younger version of yourself, what would you go back and, and what words of wisdom would you impart? I think I'd actually say with absolute honesty to be kinder with myself because I've done a lot and there's so much more to do, which is awesome. But when you beat yourself up, especially in startup journey, in workforce, whatever, People can take stuff really, really personally mm. and that can weigh on you and that then shapes all of your decisions and everything mm. else. Mm. So I'd say to me, be a bit kinder on myself, be a bit more courageous because there's more stuff I could have done. And for me specifically as a ex-digger, it's all about taking me time. Mm. So when I worked for Rupert, we worked massive weeks and mm. we played really hard as well mm. too. Mm. So I was the guy when someone came over from New York because I was always single because I didn't have time for a relationship, mm. I was out with them at various clubs and places, drinking champagne till three in the morning, yep. going straight back to work the next morning. Yeah. And so that's been a career People thing. aspire to that though, but I don't, I, think they, I don't think they realize there's two sides to that coin. I think right? when you're really young, it's doable mm. because I left defense at 28. Mm. And so I had a learned behavior of big hours, yep. you know, and you know what it's like when you're deployed or yeah. operationally. You, you, you can you give do- until you- Pass out, basically. Oh, yeah. The, the machine will take as much as you give it. Yep. It never says stop. Yeah, and then if you don't stop when you get out, that's where the damage actually starts to happen. And as we're talking about dad injuries at the moment, mm. that stuff happens more frequently when you're not looking after yourself. Yeah. So yeah, be kinder, be more courageous and take more time. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few.
Thanks, Chris, for coming on to the podcast. You've shared a lot today and your journey has certainly been one that not many people have. And and I think a lot of people would probably keep it a lot closer to their chest than what you've done, mate. And what you're doing for veterans, what you're doing in business is incredibly, it's a very selfless act. So super appreciate you being on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thank you, Chris. No worries. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.